Morning, church. How are we all? We good? Great to be with you all this morning again. Add my welcome to that of Sam's. Now that we're getting into kind of what we'd call uh, almost normal rhythms, I've got more to think about, more to organize. I've got clickers and stuff that I need to be aware of. I'm also getting older, so I need to be aware that I can't read. I need my glasses. Uh, other little thing is that we're, we're in the book of James. I'll probably mention that again. Uh, but we've got booklets that have been made up so that you can travel with us uh, through this series. So if you want one of those booklets uh, and you can jot your notes down and, and take your own thoughts and uh, if you think something I've said is interesting, you can write that down. Let Glennis know and she can either email you a copy or, or print you off a hard copy. Uh, so there you go. There's a couple of little announcements uh, for today. And I think that's <coughs> all that we need to, to know about this morning. Uh, as I said, we're, uh, we're starting a new series in James, and it's called Faith Works. Uh, there it is there. So basically, uh, the idea is that faith makes life work. And faith in Jesus, you know, it, makes, it leads to freedom, it leads to joy, deep satisfaction. And a life of faith is works. Uh, internally and externally, but not to get saved, but because uh, we have been saved. Works, we say, uh, they're not, they're, they're evidential, they're not instrumental, like they're evidence of the fact that we've been saved and transformed, have a relationship with Jesus, but they're not instrumental in, in how that happens. You understand the, the distinction there? They show that we, they show that we have been saved, uh, they're not how we get saved. Uh, and that's sort of it. And that's what James is saying yeah, in this book that we're going to get into, that if, if you claim Christ, then you should sort of live like Christ. Well, not short, sort of, you should live like Christ. So um, if you have your Bibles there, open them up. Hope you've got them. Uh, if you've got the things that Glennis has produced, then grab them. As I said, you can jot down in them. Uh, make some space, take some notes, and then hopefully, uh, you know, you take that back and you can get into your small groups, and, and, and hopefully we're in small groups, and I know we're just kicking off, and I see Josh is here, going to throw him under the bus, because we haven't talked about this, but if you're not in a small group and you want to get into one, then talk to Josh and I, and, and we'll, we'll work out how that happens. Uh, because you should be in a small group. Like, we can't tell you how to behave uh, as a Christian. We leave that up to the Holy Spirit. But if the only thing, uh, the only meal, the only thing that you're putting into your life through the week is a sermon from me, then that's a very narrow, uh, very very reduced diet. Some of you don't even like my preaching, so it's probably a tough diet. So, you know, um, push back into your small groups, and that's where you can be being nurtured, are being fed, having your, your spiritual life uh, taken care of through, through the Word, through fellowship and all those kind of things. We encourage you uh, to be getting into a small group. The Christian life is not lived in isolation. Anyone who thinks that they can be a Christian and crusade on through without being in a church where they're, where they're being nurtured, where they're being accountable, or have been in a small group where, where their faith being grown as well is just flat out either just deluded or not kind of on the same plane as what the Bible is. So anyway, there you go. That's all for free. A um, little bit of a whatever that was. Hey, let's pray and then we'll get into uh, this, this first bit of James. Now, while I'm at it, confessions, I suppose, of uh, pastors. Some people have nice little outlines like we're going to be 10 weeks in the book of James and I've kind of broken it down 
And I think there's some pastors out there, super pastors, who know exactly what they're going to preach about. That's not me. Uh, I kind of just fossick around and see what turns up as the week goes on. So I had intended to do all eight verses. But by Friday, I was like, no, nah, I'm, just, I'm just sort of sitting in these first two. And that's going to lead nicely into communion. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing. And hopefully we're going to catch up the other six verses next week. So you get twice the value for money next week. So, you know, come back. Uh, more stuff to, to be had there. Hey, let's pray and we'll get into this. Loving God, uh, as Sam has said, like, open our hearts and our minds uh, to your word this morning. I pray the Holy Spirit would take uh, the words that he has inspired, that he's written into this book of James centuries ago. And bring them to life in us so that our lives and our walk of life might be one of glory for you and deep joy for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, the other thing, I don't know if you've noticed, but hey, team over here, I'm, I'm back in the center of the stage anymore. So I feel like, you know, I feel like we're together again. I was over there and it was all about you guys, but now here I am uh, back in the middle. So I like that. I feel like that's a good thing. Uh, you'll notice we're making a few little adjustments as we go along uh, for life back in church. The cameras aren't taking up as much space and all that sort of stuff. So you'll see changes. Uh, throughout the week and hopefully we're just creating more of a feel of community so there you go but for 10 weeks we're going to be diving into this book of James now if you're like me uh, I kind of oh yeah this is going to be awesome this is going to be good um, you know no other book in the Bible like James has got as many uh, fridge magnets you know made about it uh, no other book has got lots of encouraging, piffy little one-liners that, that encourage us about our practical Christianity. Um, you know what? You just need to brace yourself uh, because James is just not playing with this book. He's not messing around. Uh, he has one goal, and that goal is that your confession of faith in Jesus would, would match uh, a practice of faith like Jesus. So is it what, what, what you say you confess actually has some working out that, that we can see something is going on in the life. There's something radically different about you. And somewhat controversially, it's been, you know, uh, I think it was Luther called James the epistle of straw because the gospel, Jesus is never actually kind of mentioned in there. He doesn't actually restate the gospel in this little letter or he doesn't define the essential principles, uh, but rather he fleshes out the practical principles of the gospel. And he, and he fills this letter with the practical teachings of Jesus that should arise uh, from a heart that's actually been transformed by the gospel. Uh, this is James kind of going, oh yeah, Jesus said that. I remember that. Let's, let's plug that into this situation. That's what's going on. James is saying our actions, whether our words or our deeds, our values or our goals, goals, what we hold most precious, they're like a window into our souls that reveal the true nature of what rules it and motivates it. What, 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 shows its security, its joy. Jesus sort of said, hey, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's sort of what James is getting at. 
James writes this letter similar to the style of the book of Proverbs uh, in that it consists of short, challenging segments of, of wisdom speeches uh, that anchor in the teaching of Jesus and lead to obedience in Jesus. So it's, it's like that. It's like James went, oh yeah, I remember when Jesus said this and then he's going to give us some practical outworkings to what that means in our lives. And he uses vivid imagery and metaphors to help, uh, help that teaching kind of stick, help it kind of grab into our hearts and our minds. It's a powerful and punchy letter that probes our hearts and seeks to lead us to maturity in our faith so that we can be confident in our faith, that we can be consistent uh, and, and single-hearted in, in how we uh, exercise our faith. James is he's digging in, he's getting into our business and challenging us, but always pointing us to where uh, true wisdom and life is found, in the person and the teachings of Jesus in something greater than your own personal resources, uh, in, in your own personal knowledge. You know, James is saying, hey, you know, perhaps for a moment, just kind of consider or, or count it or, you know, think your way through this, that you might not actually know everything there is to know about the situation or the suffering or the whatever it is that you find yourself in. You might not know everything there is to know about that. So, so seek wisdom. Seek wisdom from someone who does know everything. It's this kind of stuff that we, we find in the letter of James. James's introduction to the letter also tells us something else. It tells us of a remarkable transformation uh, and work of faith in itself. Now, what we need to realize is there's a, there's a couple of Jameses in the, in the New Testament. There's a couple of people that are called James, uh, namely two other disciples that exist. And uh, one of them is James, and he's the brother of John. He was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, he, he's killed by Herod. Um, we read about that in tw Acts 12, 1 to 2. And then there's James, the son of Alphaeus, and he's another disciple of Jesus. And we know nothing about this guy. He's lost to history. So the writer of this letter is neither of those two men, not these guys. James, who wrote this letter, uh, became one of the four pillars of the church. And then we had Peter, John, and, and Paul, and James is considered to be the four pillars of the early church. James led and pastored the church of Jerusalem for at least 20 years, and he was the half-brother of Jesus. That's who this James is. This James grew up with Jesus, shared a bedroom, shared a bathroom, that kind of stuff. This James could not have written this sentence. Uh, oh, I've got to remember these things, don't I? We're back to this kind of business. There, there it is. This James could not have written this sentence. James, a servant of God, he could have written that because that's who he felt he was, but he couldn't attack this on the end. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could not have written that sentence just six to eight years earlier. You see, at that point in time, James, along with his other brothers and sisters, were, were ridiculing and mocking uh, their half-brother Jesus as being quite out of his mind. You know, families are kind of like that. You never get the same sort of, you never give them the same esteem inside a family as you get outside of family sometimes. I hear that happens around places. Um, but James perhaps uh, is suffering from, from living in the shadow of a perfect big brother. Uh, you can imagine life in the house of Jesus, kind of growing up with Jesus. You know, James, why can't you be like Jesus? He's, he's perfect. Yeah. 
He's not punching his brother in the throat all the time, that kind of stuff. And James is like, yeah, well, we'll see. You know, one day he'll stuff up and I'll be there. I'll be there to make sure everybody knows about it. Little brothers are like that too sometimes, I've heard. We read in Mark 3 that, that when the family of Jesus heard that Jesus was appointing disciples, he's appointing these 12 disciples, the significance of itself, and that he was setting himself up as this radical teacher healer, kind of with a messianic flavor, allowing the crowds to call him the Son of God. They're like, we've got to put an end to this. And they, just, they devised this kind of snatch and grab kind of moment. Uh, they wanted to have Jesus committed He's out of his mind is what we read they say. Uh, you know, notions of grandeur, things like that. comes from being the eldest brother. I've heard elder, eldest brothers have issues. James did not see his half-brother as being a divine son of God. In fact, considered his claims to be quite outrageous, considered his, his claims and what he was up to to be quite scandalous. And, and John tells us in John 7, 5, that, that they, his brothers and that just simply did not believe anything that Jesus said about himself. So what transformed this jealous, this cynical, uh, doubting younger brother to become the revered and much-loved pastor of Jerusalem uh, we, that we find? We find that mentioned in the book of Acts, and we, we read about it in church history. What changed this man? And the answer to that question is found in Paul's letter to 1 Corinthians, in Corinthians 15. And Paul has already identified James, the half-brother of Jesus, as the apostle that he went and visited uh, when he'd become a Christian, when, when, when Jesus had appeared to him. He went to Jerusalem and, and he only spoke to James. You read about that in Galatians 1.19. These two men had a lot in common. They both were devout Jews. Uh, they both cherished the law and its practice. They, and they both rejected the claims of Jesus because they thought his claims were dangerous uh, to the law and to the, to the establishment of Judaism. But they both had an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus in person that redefined and transformed their faith, their relationship with God, and their understanding of who Jesus is. And I imagine that it's that time, it's in that time of, of sharing conversations, swapping stories about how Jesus appeared to them, that, that Paul hears about the risen Lord Jesus' appearance to James. In 1 Corinthians 15, 7, we find out that one of the first things that Jesus did after his resurrection was he went and sought out his older brother, who just a couple of years earlier tried to have him committed as just being mentally unstable. You know, I think this is one of the only conversations um, where Jesus is just one-on-one -on -one with someone. Like all the other times, there's other people around. It would have been interesting to be, hear how that conversation went. Like, that would have been very cool to be able to sit in and listen to that. And who knows what is said. But the resurrection of Jesus is the only thing that accounts for the opening letters that we find... In the opening lines that we find in this letter, to go from my brother is out of his mind, he's crazy, to James, a servant of both God and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is a phrase that's just loaded uh, with divinity and a messianic fulfillment and, and worship, like a Jewish man now worshipping another man. That is, that's just off the chain crazy unless that other man happens to be God. 
And let me tell you, the Jews are the last people on the planet Earth to think that's possible. That takes something that is both uh, supernatural. And don't forget, like James has, James has got more knowledge of Jesus. Uh, he already knows there's no skeletons in the cupboards of Jesus. Like He knows Jesus lived a perfect life. He was there, and yet he still doubts. It's not until the resurrection comes that something affirms it in him. There's some supernatural thing, and, and, and also some imper- that's empirically concrete, something that's undeniable has happened, like your crucified, dead, uh, and buried half-brother standing in front of you saying, hey, hey, let's go and grab some fish, and let's talk about how I can give you the same resurrected life that I have. Let's talk about how, how faith in me as a Savior and Lord leads to fullness of life, leads, leads to that law that you love becoming deep joy. How I know how I've been perfect on your behalf. And not so mom could shame you into cleaning your room, but so I could serve you on a cross, so that I could be the curse of this law that you read. And, and, and gifting you the inheritance that it promises. I did all that on your behalf. Let's talk about that, James. That's our boy, James. That's who's writing this letter from, radic- from, from skeptic to radical believer. And, and it's the resurrection of Jesus that has transformed him. It's the only thing that happens between you're out of your mind and, oh, yeah, Lord Jesus Christ, servant, yeah. Because the resurrection of Jesus means that every claim he ever made is true. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't deceitful. He was God in the flesh. That's what defeating death and and, and being raised to eternal and immortal life, uh, you know, having that on your CV, that kind of proves that sort of stuff. So James just pushes all his chips into the middle of the table and says, I'm yours. I'm a servant of God, and the way that I live that out is in obedience to Jesus as the divine Son who died for my sins. He is Lord and Christ. And James lives the rest of his life in, in perseverance and steadfastness uh, to this. This is the anchor of James's soul. That's what qualifies him to write this letter. This letter that he writes to the, to the 12 tribes scattered uh, among the nations, which is a term that refers to the original 12 tribes of, of the people of God, of the people of Israel. And they've been scattered throughout the nations uh, through exile and persecution, various things over the century. But now James uses it. He, I think he fills this up more to refer to the, to the true people of God, which would include the Gentiles. The true people of God in the last days, Christians, they themselves scattered throughout the Roman Empire due to persecution. We read about that in Acts 11. James is writing to Christians to say, "Uh, unless your practice of life flows out of the reality of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, unless, like me, Jesus is your Lord, suffering's going to undo you. You will not grow. You'll be crushed. You'll become bitter. Wealth, status, reputation will will, will master you. It will will become an idol. It will enslave you rather than be something that serves you. Unless Jesus is the core reality, deepest treasure of your soul, you will not live in the joy that God has designed for you. Because only Jesus actually is a God who serves you. 
Only Jesus is a treasure of your heart that needs nothing from you. James is saying, life lived there. You know, historians like Josephus and Eusebius have recorded how the life of James ended. You know, convalescing at Club Med, you know, drinking a cocktail or something rather there, just kicking back. Not really. Uh, he was martyred for his faith in Jesus. Contemporary historians of the day tell us that the Jewish religious leaders had had enough of, of James because James is revered because he is such a strict Jew. He's revered. And that, so they, they, they want to end his preaching of Jesus. So they haul him up onto the top of the temple where they crowd below, they orchestrated it, and they've told uh, James that he's to address the audience below by denying that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus has raised from the dead and he's now you know, ascended, been, been approved by God and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Um, James was well known. For three things. This is why they've got him up there. He was well known for his devotion in prayer. His knees were said to look like the knees of a camel. Now, if you're a floor tiler, you can probably relate to that, but that's how much time he spent down on his knees. He, he was known for his devotion to the law, to God's law as the way of life. And thirdly, his devotion to Jesus who filled up this law and made that law a work of grace in James' life. It was this third string that they want gone. It's a third string that they want James to say, no, that's not real. James, in the face of a hostile crowd, remained calm. He showed uh, unexpected tranquility, the historians write, openly declaring that our Lord and Saviour Jesus was indeed the Son of God. Eusebius writes, they were unable to stomach this testimony as James was universally acclaimed as the most righteous of men. Forcing James to stand on a parapet, they shouted to him, righteous one whose testimony we have to accept. You are leading the people astray and encouraging them to follow Jesus who was crucified. Now, not a compliment. You know, you crucified criminals and, and, and terrorists. So, like, why would you be encouraging people to follow this person? What do you mean by the door of Jesus? Apparently, James had made a lot of Jesus' teachings recorded in John's Gospel that he is the true door, the only way to life with God. And, and, and in that, Jesus also talks about how there's others and the others are the religious leaders and they are like thieves and robbers and they are coming and they are keeping you from going through this door. They're keeping you from what is the, the, the right way to find God. So, so you can understand why they got him up on a parapet. James calls back, why do you ask me about the Son of Man. He sits at the right hand of the great power and he will return on the heavenly clouds. Eusebius says the crowds that was meant to be there to hear a denial of Jesus began to praise Jesus. Hosanna to the Son of David. It fills the air. The scribes and the Pharisees realizing uh, that this was an idea gone wrong. Allowing James to speak about Jesus turns out to be a bad idea for their campaign they quickly decide that the best way to silence this, the best way to stop this agreement with James and listening to him was through fear. They call out, uh, the righteous one has gone astray. He's lost his mind. And they threw him off the edge of the parapet 
Incredibly, the fall did not kill James. So an angry mob began to stone him to death. James got to his knees and prayed, Lord God and Father, I pray thee forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And as they threw their stones, the son of, of Rechabin shouted, Stop throwing your stones. What do you think you are doing? The righteous one is praying for you. Then one of the mob, a fuller, and a fuller is a dude who beats you know, material to get out all the impurities with a, with a stick, I think. Uh, he grabbed his club that he, beat his clo- that he beat his clothes with and he cracked it down on the top of the righteous one's head. And so the righteous one was martyred and he was buried where he fell. Look at me and listen. You don't stand against the tide of culture and social pressure like that with calm tranquility if your story and what you live for is based in a lie and not empirical and undeniable supernatural truth. This is the kind of faith that the letter of James is going to lead us into. You do not take a beating like that. You don't take any kind of a beating and get up and pray for your assailants if you are not supernaturally and empirically transformed by the claims found in the resurrection of Jesus. It's the work of Jesus that the Holy Spirit used to inspire and produce in James a faith that works, a faith that transforms a man internally, transforms his motivations, and transforms him externally uh, to, to, to practice a life that actually looks like Jesus's. It is that G- James came to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour, risen Lord and Saviour, that defines how he does and deals with life. And it anchors his soul. Uh, it, it, it fills him with wisdom. It, it, it enlivens him with compassion. And it pours out of him in worship. When James saw that the resurrected Jesus, he realized that the only way his half-brother could be standing there was if, if, if uh, who he claimed to be was actually true, that he was the Son of God. He'd come into the world to save sinners, to be the door through which uh, you are brought back into a right relationship with God. Only somebody who's been telling the truth about these things would be glorified by God, resurrected back from the dead, and then, and then you know, invited to come and sit at the right hand of the Father. And that's the historic evidence we find. That's the, that's the empirical evidence that we find in the Scriptures, in the Bible. James realized that Jesus had been cruelly and indifferently mocked by an angry mob, denied and ridiculed, and he was steadfast and he persevered toward the cross. He realized that Jesus was uh, constantly and unfoundedly opposed by culture and institution, called a liar and subversive, but he was steadfast in persevering toward the cross. He realized that Jesus was unjustly and irrationally beaten and abused and humiliated and murdered. But he was steadfast and persevered the cross to the point of death. And James knew that even though he was one of 
and he, he was one of the very people who, on the planet who knew uh, the lifelong story of Jesus, knew that Jesus actually was righteous, that he, that he was sinless, that he too had been indifferent, that he too had held unfounded opposition toward Jesus, unjust treatment and accusations toward Jesus. But Jesus had been steadfast toward him, unwavering persevering so that he could one day call James a true brother that Jesus had brought James into the family of God at his expense that's what's going on in this conversation in 1 Corinthians 15 and so realizing that how much more when we too when, when that supernatural that concrete evidence finds its way in our heart knowing that Jesus has done all of that how much more now will that should that hold us in place now that we know Jesus has done all that conquered death and now sits at the right hand of the father and is just interceding for us for those who call him lord and savior like how much more should that hold you in in place James the only way for you to know God with a faith that fills you with joy, holds you in place, gives you security and confidence beyond this world, was through, was through my sorrow, was from me being undone. My death and my resurrection, my acceptance by God, my righteousness for your rebellion, James. How much more now that you see all of this, how much more now can I hold you in place? When you supernaturally and empirically see Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, as your true brother and friend, you have a faith that works, works to save you, works to help you be steadfast and persevere in life, works to grow you in the likeness and the practice of Jesus. A faith that makes life work, joy in trials, wisdom in uncertainty, tranquility in hostility, kindness in, in, in oppression, integrity in temptation, humility in achievement, patience in suffering, and grace, 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 when we fall short of this kind of faith in our life. That's what's at work in us, transforming us when the cross and the resurrection of Jesus have redefined our hearts and our motives and our worship. That though you have been uh, far more indifferent, uh, you have been opposed, you have had a prejudice against Jesus, far more of that in your life that you'd like to admit, you have also been far more loved, far more esteemed by Jesus than you dare dream to be possible. That's what the book of James is going to, be, going to be getting us into. And next week, we're going to start to get into the practical rubber on the road application of this stuff. But we want to, today, I just wanted to start with that backstory so that we're laying it down as we get into this book. We're looking forward to it. Let's, let's pray. Let me go. We thank you for this uh, book of James. And we're like two verses into it. Uh, it's so rich. Uh, we pray now that as for the next 10, nine weeks, as we gather around it, that the, the practical wisdom, the lessons of it would, would get into our souls, would, uh, would lead us to a faith that works, a faith that affirms our salvation and a faith that, that works out the practices of Christ in the world. Uh, we thank you for this and we just uh, pray these things in Jesus' name. Thank you.